Thanks, Brandon. <clears throat> well, hello. Hello. My name is Steve, and I am not a rando. <laughs> it's good to be with you all this morning, and I'm looking forward to, to going through God's Word here with you today. Um, I, I don't know why I started the last service like this, but I, I, there's a story that I'm going to tell here, and I started it by saying, uh, if you were like me and you grew up sometime around the 80s, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. I don't really care if you know how old I am. I'm 44, so I was born in 1978, grew up a lot in the 80s. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. But if you grew up, if you spent time growing up in the 80s, it's possible that for you, 2019 was a year of heartbreak. Because 2019 was the year that Aunt Becky from Full House went to prison. <laughs> Lori Laughlin is an actress, the actress who played Aunt Becky on Full House. And she, along with several other Hollywood and business figures, were embroiled in 2019 in a multi-million dollar college admissions scandal, which came to be known as the Varsity Blues scandal. Laughlin and then Felicity Huffman, who's also up there from Desperate Housewives, were two of the names that got a lot of publicity uh, during their trials and then in going to jail. But the person at the center of the scandal you might not have heard of. I certainly had never heard of this guy before this whole story blew up, and really not until I started looking into the news stories. His name's Rick Singer. Singer is a former basketball coach who started a college admissions consulting firm that catered to the rich and the famous who wanted to get their kids into prestigious universities like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, places like that. But that consulting firm of his really turned out to be a $25 million bribery scheme that paid coaches and college administrators kickbacks to indicate or to to falsify information that would indicate that these kids were being recruited by the schools to be athletes on, on particular teams, and they would therefore bypass the normal college admissions process and everything. One result of this was that deserving applicants from all over the country, but from less wealthy and less connected families, were passed over for admission in favor of these people. Now, this happened back in 2019, or they were convicted in 2019, but the trials and everything lasted until just this year. In fact, it was this January that Rick Singer was finally convicted and sentenced to three and a half years in prison. At his sentencing hearing, Singer told the judge that he was ashamed of what he had done and that he had, quote, embraced his father's belief that to lie was acceptable as long as it brought victory. Now, despite that sort of halfway admission there, prosecutors in the case said that Singer was a, quote, reluctant and duplicitous cooperator who destroyed evidence and tipped off at least six clients. As the New York Times put it, he understood the intricacies of the college athletic recruitment game and bragged about running a concierge service for the wealthy. He got students in, not through the front door of ordinary admissions, but a side door, paying off college sports officials. He chose low-profile sports where oversight was lax. In other words, he knew how to game the system. Stanford's former sailing coach, I say former because he was fired as a result of all this, he was caught up in the scandal. Afterwards, he wrote a book about it, and he said, coaches in sports 
that do not produce revenue were pressured to raise money with few questions asked. Now, this is a complex cocktail of wealth and entitlement and the business of college admissions and college athletics and blame shifting and a whole lot more. That, that whole cocktail together led to this story and Aunt Becky going to prison. This is a story about the world. Or it's a story about the world as it's described in 1 John chapter 2. This is the world that John commands us not to love, neither it nor the things that are in it. And in telling the story that I just told, I'm not trying to pile on to Aunt Becky or Felicity Hoffman or even to Rick Singer. While it seems clear that they made individual choices for which they are personally morally culpable, this situation goes beyond just personal moral culpability. Singer, in his statement to the judge, pointed to a family system that drove home a worldview in him that made this story possible from the outset. The prosecutors seemed to say that even after all that, he still lacked remorse and contrition. There's this vast interconnected web of needs and desires and special interests that all conspired together to get rich kids into college beating out poor kids. This is one of the most apt illustrations that I've seen in recent years for what the Bible calls the world. This Lent season, like Pastor Brandon just said, we have been walking together through this series that we're calling Sin and Redemption. Already we've done sort of this high-altitude flyover of the concept of sin, and we've come away from that with this understanding or the, or the language that sin is really a vandalism of shalom. It is an anomaly in God's good creation. Sin is an intruder. It doesn't have any existence on its own, but only as a corruption of God's good world. It's both a choice and a condition. It's both internal and external to us. It's individual and it's communal. Its chief consequence is death. But before physical death, there is the spiritual death of guilt and shame and fear and alienation. Alienation from God, alienation from other people, alienation from the creation that we live in, and even alienation from ourselves. We experience that within ourselves. After that message, we turned to a classic understanding of sin, the three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, or the powers. In the last two weeks, we looked at the flesh and the powers. Today, we're coming to the last of those, the world. And let me tell you, I went down the rabbit hole on this message. This is a major theme in Scripture. There is no book of the Bible where the world does not show up in some way. Outside of Scripture, there is no shortage of books that have been written on the world, either directly about that topic or indirectly. They just have to pull it in in some way. And when it comes to finding examples of the world, it turns out to be easy and hard at the same time. It's easy because it is literally all around us, and we'll talk about how that's the case. But it's also hard because the examples of the world are often so large and complex that I can't get my head around them, let alone try to explain them very lucidly to other people, which just goes to show how understanding the world is like a fish trying to comprehend water. It is so ubiquitous that it's hard to grasp, let alone describe. 
But that's our happy task today. And so starting with 1 John chapter 2, we're going to try and answer three questions, okay? First of all, what is the world? We need to have some kind of operating definition to get at this idea. Second, how does it operate? If this is a spiritual enemy of our souls, we need to know the strategies, the tactics, the way that it moves and works and what it does in order to address it better. And then third, how are we supposed to respond to it or relate to it as followers of Jesus? We're going to dive right in. First of all, that first question, what is the world? We need a definition. We need some definition. Last week, Brandon talked about the powers as these personal or quasi-personal spiritual forces that are behind the scenes of the world, behind the scenes of our lives, that are acting on behalf of Satan. They're closely connected to and overlapping with what we're going to call the world here today. As Rich Velotis put it, the powers are these spiritual forces that became hostile, taking root in individuals, ideologies, and institutions with the goal of deception, division, and depersonalization. If the powers and the principalities are personal, malevolent spiritual forces, then the world is the kingdom that they build to incarnate their objectives against God and against his will. That is clearly what John has in mind when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, in verse 15. But the John who wrote 1 John is the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. And as you may remember, in the Gospel of John, there's this very famous verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So obviously we need to identify some different meanings of this word. The word that the New Testament uses throughout all of its books for world is the word cosmos, the Greek word. And that's the one that's included all through our passage here today. There are three basic meanings of the word cosmos. First of all, it can mean just planet Earth, the universe, kind of the, the natural order of creation. Everything that we would call the natural world or that we would apply the word cosmos in English to, that's the cosmos. If you think of the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, all the stuff that God made simply by speaking words, that is the cosmos in that first sense. In a second sense, though, it's how we often talk about it in English. The world is all humankind. That's the sense that John uses in John 3.16 when he says, For God so loved the world, God so loved all of humanity, that he gave his only son. Both of those clearly have a positive connotation to them. But the third meaning is decidedly not that way. The sense of cosmos that we have, that we have here in 1 John chapter 2 is a far more negative shade. This cosmos is a world that, as Dallas Willard put it, is all of our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus are opposed to God. Abraham Joshua Heschel, a Jewish rabbi, describes the cosmos as the place where man, mankind, reigns supreme, with the forces of nature as his only possible adversaries. Man is alone, free, growing stronger. God is, neither non is either non-existent or unconcerned. It is human initiative that makes history, and it's primarily by force that the constellations change. 
man can attain his own salvation. The cosmos is the system that makes it easy to get what our flesh wants. It is the vast complex of, or the, of many things that enables and then validates and then encourages and then outright provides what our flesh is looking for. John Mark Comer puts it superbly in his book, Live No Lies. He says that the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are, here's the important part, integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. It's crucial for us to see that these ideas and values and morals and practices and norms, they get crystallized in institutions and systems. Here's where the world overlaps so much with the principalities and the powers. Fleming Rutledge, who is an Episcopal priest, in her magnificent book on the crucifixion, she shows how close together these two ideas are. She writes, 20th century theology developed the New Testament conception of the principalities and powers to include institutions, governments, universities, corporations, newspapers, banks, labor unions, and so forth, that were ordained for our good, but have fallen into the grip of sin and death. Now, not only does Rutledge link the powers and the principalities to institutions, but she reminds us that the very existence of cultural institutions, the things that have become this evil cosmos, they were created by God for our good. And that takes us back to a starting point, a foundational place that we have to begin with when we talk about sin. Sin and evil, as powerful as they seem, as powerful as they are, they have no existence on their own apart from corrupting the good that was first there. A biblical theology of sin or of the flesh or of the powers or of the world cannot start with brokenness. It always has to start with shalom. God's very good creation, flourishing and at peace and at harmony with God and within itself. God created not only the natural world, cosmos, as good. He created not only humankind, cosmos, as good. He also created institutions and structures, the cosmos, to be good. Now, that does not mean that God directly created the IRS or the Oscars or the Pacers or Butler University. He didn't reach out his hand and touch them and make that happen. But he did create a cosmos with potential in it to be developed by his image bearers, by women and men, to make something of the world, to beautify it with what we make. But that is often not what human-made institutions and structures end up doing. We've made something of the world, all right, and while there can be great beauty in it, there is also unspeakable harm. Instead of guarding and cultivating creation, humanity, the cosmos, corrupted it. Instead of creating an architecture to beautify God's good creation, institutions like banks, structures like the internet, systems like government, they instead became places for evil powers to roost 
latching on as parasites and bending them away from God's design for flourishing. But in the long arc of Scripture, God has set his affection on the cosmos, on humanity, to rescue it from, in part, this broken cosmos that they've established. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in that same book, the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples that in this cosmos you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the cosmos. And that arc of Scripture leads eventually to the book of Revelation where we are given a vision and a promise. It's a promise of a day to come when the kingdom of this cosmos will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I cannot hear that verse without thinking of Handel's Messiah. Hopefully the same is true for you. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that in the person of Jesus Christ, that world to come, that cosmos to come, has already arrived. It is in that arrival, and it's in our waiting for its full and final consummation, that John gives us this command today. Do not love this cosmos or the things in the cosmos. He clearly does not mean people. He, he clearly does not mean that we should hate people. Let me say that. He means don't give your allegiance to this world, this tangled web of ideas and values and structures that stand against the one true God. He means don't set your affection on things that are produced by or promoted by this system. Because the things that come from this system, this world, they don't come from God. So we need to pause for a minute here on the nature of the stuff that's in the world, what it is that comes out of that world. Because in verse 16, John says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away. Instead of lusts, your translation might read desire. And that last part there, instead of pride of possessions, it might actually just say the pride of life. That's literally what it says. The word for life or possessions there is bios, where we get biology from. The idea here is that there is a self-centered wanting gone out of control that is the hallmark of the world. The lust of the flesh certainly includes sexual temptation and sexual immorality, but really any craving that comes from our flesh for food or for drink or for control or for happiness or for knowledge, all of that counts as the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, John probably has greed primarily in mind, but that very easily overflows into envy and just discontentment with your lot in life. Pride in possessions or the pride of life, it could mean an arrogance that grows out of having and getting more, but at its core, it is just an arrogant self-centeredness, even when it's all gussied up to look nice with religi religiosity and nice language and a, a good life. Now, we don't have time to, to get into this this morning, but many people have pointed out over the years that this unholy trinity of worldly passions right there mirrors the sin both in, well mirrors the sin in Gen, Genesis chapter 3 in the story of the fall and the temptations that Jesus endured in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 
These three things there, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they show up in very remarkable ways in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. You should go look that up. But let's zoom out to the big picture for just a moment here. Remember that the world that we're talking about is just one aspect of how sin shows up and proliferates in all of creation. And if we think again of those three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, recall the explanation that we've used for the last couple of weeks for how those overlap and reinforce one another. The battle for our souls is being waged along the lines of deceptive ideas, that's the devil or the powers, that play to our disordered desires, that's the flesh, which are then normalized in a sinful society, the world. What is it in society or about society that normalizes these deceptive ideas and disordered desires? What, what about the world makes that possible? We, we've got to do better than just saying culture is the problem, you know, like slap a label on it, the, the culture's bad, and then we just throw that out there as though that's the answer. That is a very tempting scapegoat. And followers of Jesus, we often do that a lot. We just kind of use it as a, a go-to. But Leslie Newbigin, who is a, a British missiologist in the last century, he wrote an incredible book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And he has an entire chapter about the principalities and powers, and he writes this after I take a drink. <clears throat> Long-enduring institutions have something, an inwardness which can be recognized in those who form the institution at any one time, but outlasts and transcends them. This something may be benevolent or malevolent. A good school has a spirit, an ethos, which molds the characters of the pupils. It was there before they came, and it'll be there after all the present pupils have left. A nation, similarly, has something which is not just the sum of the attitudes of its individual citizens. And a mob can become an embodiment of evil, an evil which its individual members would never have wished for on their own. Clearly, this something has reality. The principalities and powers are real. They are invisible, and we cannot locate them in space. They do not exist as disembodied entities floating above the world or lurking within it. They meet us as embodied, invisible, and tangible realities, people, nations, and institutions. That reality is what we are calling the world. It exists anywhere human beings get together or organize something. It can be simple, like a kid's sports team, where a hyper-competitiveness suddenly springs up, or there's poor sportsmanship and name-calling, looking down on parents who don't pull their weight and volunteer. It can be very complex, like the Varsity Blues scandal. Newbegin names some other examples of, as well, things that I would never have thought of. He, he even names things like number, the concept of number. He says, numbering is an element of order in the universe that allows us to measure and quantify. So it's a gift. But it becomes a hidden overlord when it leads us to value only what can be measured and quantified. Only things that you can put a number on are the things that have meaning. But there may be no better example that we can turn to of the world as 
institutionalized, systematized sin than race. Where ethnicity has been a beautiful part of God's creation and plan all along, race was a human invention that co-opted ethnicity in order to create an artificial value system and a power structure and then suppress, oppress people inside of it. Race paved the way for slavery in the United States, which got woven into the fabric of our nation on social and moral and legal and economic and even spiritual lines. And even after its official end in the 13th Amendment, racism continued as official policy through Jim Crow laws and segregation and redlining and more. And that legacy is still being felt and lived out in structural systemic racism today and bias. All of that is what we mean by the world. So we've got some definition now to work with of what the world is. The next question is, how does this operate? What are the strategies? What are the tactics of this spiritual enemy of our souls? The world exercises outsized power over us because it usually operates outside of our conscious thinking. It's under the radar. <clears throat> it's the air we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. But it's not simply just a passive environment that's out there that we happen to find ourselves in somehow. The world is actively shaping us without our knowing it. This is what we would call unintentional spiritual formation. And if you've been at SOMA for like five minutes, you've probably heard about this before. As human beings, we cannot help but be formed. It is in the nature of who God made us to be. However, who or what is forming us, who it's forming us into, and how aware we are of that formation, those are the crucial questions that the world, the flesh, and the devil would prefer that we stay ignorant of. As human beings, we are constantly being shaped by three broad categories of thing. Stories, habits, and relationships. Stories are from our families, our cultural group, our national history, our faith tradition, really anything. They download basic templates into our brains for understanding what is true and good and beautiful. Now, habits are the patterns of thinking and feeling and acting that might start in our lives, either intentionally or unintentionally, but eventually they just, they just drop over into the second nature category. It's what we do without thinking. We experience those things, the stories and the habits, in a complex web of relationships. Some of them are closer, some of them are further away, and all of them together somehow reinforce the, the dominant stories in our lives and the habits that we're living out. All of this happens in an environment, a personal and cultural milieu that we live in. And this right here, that is the recipe for how human beings change. The world, the flesh, and the devil know that, and they want to keep us ignorant of how it's happening. And here's the thing. For all of that to work, here's what you have to do. You have to be breathing. If you're alive, this is going on for you. You don't have to think about it. It just happens. And if the stories that you're marinating in, the habits that you're practicing, the relationships that you are giving yourself to aren't forming you toward God, 
guess what? They are shaping you according to the world and the flesh and the devil and all of their designs. There is no neutral ground. Now, as the devil and the powers are planting these deceptive ideas that play into our disordered desires and our flesh, a major function of the world is to make those ideas seem attractive and okay. The world is this set of institutions and systems that become a plausibility structure for the fleshy ideas to take root and to gain ground. One extreme of this is what the writer Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. She used that to refer to radical evil, like the Holocaust, and how it usually has a very non-radical face, at least non-radical by the standards of whatever culture it's happening in. It doesn't appear to be diabolical on the surface. It seems to fit right in with what or who we would call good. It goes with the grain. That is how the world operates. It creates an environment in which fleshy deceptions from the enemy can enter unobtrusively. They can slowly be absorbed and then accepted and then eventually celebrated as what is true and good and beautiful when, in fact, they stand opposed to God. For as long as anyone could remember, it was understood, just hands down, that stealing records and then eight tracks and then cassettes and then CDs from a music store was wrong. And doubly so if you then copied that music and gave it to other people. All of that changed with Napster in the 1990s. I'm really taking us back a couple decades today, aren't I, guys? Napster came around, and then suddenly music piracy becomes not just acceptable, but common. Everybody's doing it. You get a mixtape, and you get a mixtape. That is how the world works. It makes us think that what we previously knew was wrong is now, oh, right, this is the normal thing to do. There's so, much, there's so much on the cutting floor of this sermon, so much more that we could say about the strategy and the tactics of the cosmos, but for the sake of time, we need to get to this final question. If this is what the world is, and if this is how the world operates, how do we respond to it? How are we supposed to relate to it? How are we as followers of Christ in 21st century Indianapolis supposed to relate to the world? Well, first recall where we've been the last couple of weeks. Our response to the flesh is essentially to put it to death, right? Colossians chapter 3 is the preeminent text on that idea. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. And then when we talk about the devil or the powers, our response last week we saw was to stand. That's the basic message, message of Ephesians chapter 6. Stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. Another way to say that might be resist, like in James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so already we can see that our response to these different aspects of the, these enemies of the soul, it, it needs to change depending on what we're talking about. And so while John's command to us in the passage today is a simple, don't love the world or the things in the world, that's a negative statement. That's what we're not supposed to do. But positively, what do we do? Well, as we read the broad sweep of Scripture, I think we basically see four options for how God's people have learned to respond to the world over time. And unfortunately, only one of them is the right one. We spend a lot of time in the wrong three. 
First of all, there's what we might call passive capitulation. This is the long, slow turn toward the world, the flesh, and the devil, one small decision at a time, one rationalization at a time, one minuscule little allowance at a time. A great example from Scripture for this would be King Solomon. He started out with this spiritual fervor, devotion to the Lord. He only asked for wisdom to lead the people well. He didn't ask for riches or power or fame. And of course, when God heard him ask for wisdom, he gave him that. And because he didn't ask for the other things, he gave him those too. It was a gift. But over time, that so much more, that good gift from God, the trappings of kingship, military and political and cultural success, it put Solomon to spiritual sleep. He made alliances with surrounding nations that involved taking wives from among their people. And to begin with, polygamy was a breach of God's law, but it also imported idolatry into Israel, into the royal household, into Solomon's life himself. He passively capitulated to the world. Now, the second response is just outright acceptance of the world, what we might call active assimilation. This is the wholehearted, drinking the Kool-Aid, diving into the deep end of what the world is offering. King Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah, you can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 21, is probably the premier example of this. But after Manasseh and then the other king's idolatry finally led Israel into exile, we see another reaction to the world start to form among God's people. And it's a reaction that we might call spiteful separation. The best example of this is Jonah. As a prophet, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of the pagan Assyrian empire, the, this aggressive enemy of, of Israel. And God sent him with a message not of judgment, but of repentance. Turn from your sin, turn back to God, or Nineveh will fall. But maybe you remember this. Jonah was like, uh-uh, don't want any of that. I, they do not deserve it. I want them to be punished. Jonah, you know, after the whole fish thing, he eventually goes reluctantly, but he's hoping for fire and brimstone to come down on them and wipe them out. And at the end of the book, after God has, has begun to show the Ninevites mercy, where is Jonah? He is outside the city, not in it, pouting, wishing that this merciful God would either kill them or kill him because he doesn't want to have to deal with them anymore. Now, it should go without saying that this is not who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus. But too often, that's the tone and that's the pose that followers of Jesus take toward the world. Standoffishness, condemnation, glee when bad things happen to it. But we are called to something else, something that we might call a repentant, redemptive remaining. Daniel is our model for this. Rather than seeking to escape the culture that we're in, and you can talk about us living in a digital Babylon right now, a great book, Faith for Exiles by David Kinnaman. Daniel was a literal exile in literal Babylon. And rather than trying to get back to the home nation of Israel, back in Palestine, he stayed which is what we're called to do as well, to remain where we are, to pray for the peace of our city. 
Rather than seeking to escape the culture we're in, we remain in it. Rather than acquiescing to its norms and its values, its cosmos, we are to repent of those things. And not just one time, like if we see it happen in our life, but we keep on repenting as we see it creep into our lives again and again and again. We repent not only for ourselves, but for the community of people that we represent who as a whole have committed those sins. We as Christians, we as the church, even if I myself have not personally done that thing. And rather than just lobbing grenades in a culture war, we are to work in it and we're to work for it, for its redemption. I am way out of time here, but I want to offer three invitations to us to try to start living this vision out. First, very much in line with Daniel, we have an invitation to repent. And especially during this season of Lent, the invitation is wide open to us to foster not just an occasional practice of repentance, but an attitude, a lifestyle of repentance, of turning away from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and turning back toward God. In his brand new book called Lent, uh, Esau McCulley, uh, who's a, he's an Anglican priest, he talks about the power of this Anglican prayer in the Book of Common Prayer called the Litany of Penitence. And it's, it's this long-form prayer, it's often prayed on Ash Wednesday, that gives us language for a lot of different kinds of sins that maybe we haven't ourselves really walked through a whole lot Others, we definitely have, but we need a balanced diet of sin in order to understand, wait, there is so much in this world that needs to be, that, that Jesus has atoned for, and that I need to keep turning over to him in different ways. Prayers like this give us a wide-ranging language to offer areas of our life to God that we never really considered before, places we never imagined that the world might be soaking in or sneaking in like fog through a window. The second invitation for us here, also in line with Daniel, also in line with the season of Lent, is that we have an invitation to fast. That's actually the seasonal practice that we have put into the community rule of life for this season. You can pick that up if you don't have one yet. <clears throat> this might be a traditional or even just a partial fast from food in some way, but what else what artifacts of the world, the cosmos, might be good, even necessary for us to fast from in order to decrease our dependency on them and to reattach ourselves to God? Social media, devices in general, entertainment broadly. Lastly, there's an invitation here to community, to a discipline of community. One reason that Daniel became such a redemptive influence in Babylon was that he had friends. He had thick community there in exile. His friendships with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are legendary for how they stuck together and supported one another in their fight to be faithful to the Lord in a culture that was, take, was driving the opposite direction. Friends, we have the same opportunity in the church, a Christ-formed, Christ-centered Christ-shaped community that teaches us to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Those are our invitations. It's my joy to walk in them with you. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that you are opening our eyes to see what the nature of our enemy truly is, how large it is, how much help we need, but also how great your power for us is. Holy Spirit, come. We invite you to reign, to bring the reign of Jesus into our lives, to make us new as you make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.